Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is your local community radio station that you are currently tuned to, broadcasting on Jagger and Turable Country. And my name is Andy, and I'll be hanging out with you for the next hour. Uh, Coming to you again from Iraqi Kurdistan, although the interviews I'm going to be playing today on the show come from another uh, location on my travels over the last year or so. I did um, spend December and January in New Zealand. I did make a few shows from there, but mostly I was trying to stay off computers and screens and things like that, have a bit of a sabbatical. Uh, but also because I was staying in a community where that was the norm. They didn't use computers or mobile phones on the land where they lived. In fact, they didn't use very much machinery at all. The community has various names, often just called Maikior or the Valley, um, but also St. Francis Farm, often named after the Uh, legendary environmentalist Italian monk from the 13th century. And it's quite a countercultural place. Uh, They grow most of their own food and, in fact, give away a lot of food and welcome um, all kinds of people to come and stay and feed and shelter them. Um, But they do so without using industrial farming machinery. And there's a few, I guess, ideological aspects to it, as we will hear, an environmental consciousness. It's an attempt to live in community, multiple households together on the same land. Um, and there's certainly a, a spiritual aspect to it, both uh, um, Christianity and trying to integrate that with Māori uh, traditional culture. And there's also an openness that people can come and stay there and over the decades many, many people uh, have just turned up and stayed there for various lengths of time. Again, um, a Christian idea of hospitality mixed with a traditional Māori idea of manakatanga. Um, The property's been going for 40 years and is multi-generational now, as you'll hear, and uh, quite a few people have asked me about it um, since coming back. And so I did just before leaving, I had a chat to a few people from the community and it's nice to be able to share them with you. And there's plenty to talk about, so I won't spend any longer introducing it. Let's get into it with Marissa Dowling and Patrick Land. My name is Marissa Dowling. I'm Australian, born in Queensland, Brisbane, and I've lived in New Zealand for about 10 years now. My name's Patrick Land. 
born here on the farm, and uh, it was my first interview. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm married to Marissa. All right, so we're going to talk about uh, the farm here where you guys live with other people. I guess to start off with, we should talk about how do you live? What's the, to use a Māori word, what's the kopapa of the, the farm here? Yeah, well, I guess there's a few few aspects. Yeah, so we live in community with two of my brothers and their families and then mum and dad and my other brother. Yeah, so life on it's life on the land, so it's a farming, but we yeah try to live sustainably, and for us that um, includes uh, not using fossil fueled machinery or other technology, and uh, no two forty volt electricity. So um, everything's yeah either by hand or by horse, and yeah we just try and grow as much of our own food as we can from the farm. What proportion of your food is grown here on the land? Oh, we always say about 80% of our food um, is grown on the farm. I haven't crunched some numbers recently, yeah. but yeah. Mm. And before we talk about other elements, you're also in the process of building a house, which you are also trying to build purely from materials here uh, on the Fenua. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we're um, embarking upon a cob house project and um, we're trying to source everything from the land that we live on, including growing rice for straw for the cob mix. So cob is um, clay, sand and straw. And we chose cob because we don't have a lot of hardwood timber and we didn't want to use um, tantalised timber. And cob is something that we can create um, from the land that we're on. The long term, long slow thing. Rocks from the river, clay from the hill, straw from the garden. But yeah, it's exciting. All right, so um, I guess one of the notable things about how you live here is not using machinery. A lot has come since the industrial revolution from uh, combustion engines and things like that. But uh, at least when on the land in the food production here, mm. you not to use that. What's the thinking behind that? But yeah, for us, again, there's a few um, different aspects to it. But um, like climate change is a big one, um, becoming more and more so. Yeah, so we believe climate change is happening, mainly caused by humans through fossil fuels and modern agriculture. So when you put it in that way, for me, it's not so much an option, like, should we live without fossil fuels or not? I think we have to live without fossil fuels in order to, for everyone on the planet to have life. So it's kind of, it's not, it's not like a, it's an easy choice. I guess fighting climate change is like a, a bonus of a great life on the land. And I guess what has machinery and fossil fuels brought us, not exactly a boundless happiness, so we don't feel like we're losing out by not using fossil fuels and machinery. Uh, quite the contrary. When you use manual labour on a farm that you live on, you're spending time with your kids, time with your spouse, time with you know, someone in need, perhaps, uh, time with your community. So it's all tied in together. That's another aspect. 
I guess we also think it helps to create space for the potential of a more spiritual um, life as well. There's the noise factor, for one. You know, people often come here and remark upon um, how quiet it is without chainsaws and tractors and things like that. There's a, um, a certain peacefulness. And also, you know, if you are grinding your wheat by hand in the grinder instead of popping it in your thermomix, you've kind of um, created that extra thinking space. Scrubbing your washing, it's a big part of life here, hand scrubbing washing. Some people see that as anti-feminist. For me, it's been very um, pro-life and motherhood, sort of, and yeah, good for my soul, I suppose, being able to be more present to what is in front of us. Yeah, so there's a spiritual aspect, which is actually like handed down from Patrick's grandfather um, who first moved here. It's not something our generation came up with. (laughs) We've inherited that spirituality on the land. There's also, I guess, the Catholic worker tradition is something Mm. that you've identified with. And yeah, I guess what other spiritual influences brought about this kind of way of thinking that this is not necessarily just like a better environmental way to live but a better way for community and people to live yeah well we start if we start with patrick's grandfather he was he grew up in the islands and um he saw something there he was european himself and from quite a kind of a colonial household but as an individual he saw something that they had in their lifestyle um that he longed for there's kind of that aspect. And then also he's been very influenced by the Tao Te Ching. So he taught himself classical Chinese and that's really influenced his life. So for him, those were big impacts. And then probably for um, Patrick's dad and for us as well, um, Māori, kind of being able to live alongside a Māori community and be invited into their traditions and getting to hear their spirituality and experience that to an extent as well um, has greatly influenced um, ourselves and then yeah Catholicism as well in the mix (laughs) believe it or not (laughs) yeah just all apart meandering through the way we live here (laughs) yeah and I guess you mentioned the Catholic worker and one of the founders Peter Moran um, manual labour for him it wasn't just about working working yeah there was definitely a spiritual aspect and a political aspect intellectual way yeah yeah politically it's interesting i guess people in in both of your families have been you know politically involved in a traditional activist sense i've been here we've talked about uyghurs the oppressed uh minority in china and trying to stand up for that cause um you're not sort of directly Mm -hmm. holding up signs in front of parliament or anything here but is there a political aspect to how you're living yeah, for sure. Um, and we were brought up to know that what we were doing would have a, a political effect. Like if everyone, if we weren't relying on large corporations for what we eat and, and all of that, well, they wouldn't have any power over us. So, yeah, it creates independence. Yeah, I guess, like we see a very real connection between what you eat and where it's come from. So a bit of a trade-off for us if we were more you know out on the streets doing the frontline protest would be 
more reliant on the system that we're actually protesting. So it feels nice to create an alternative and, yeah, just take away that power that the destructive corporations have over us. Yeah, I guess. Ideally, we could um, feed a few protesters. Two birds with one stone. That's right, yeah. On talk about family, you're bringing up three kids uh, this way. I guess there's pros and cons of um, different ways of bringing up kids. Uh, you want to tell us about what it's like to bring up kids in this way and why you've made that choice? Well, for one, like just the aspect of living in a small village type space makes it very easy. I just I can't imagine how hard it would be to live in a apartment or a suburban block if you were isolated in that setting raising children so I guess yeah that's easy and joyful aspect of life here it's just very feels very wholesome way to bring up our kids they're very um engaged in the outside world and um very active yeah I guess something people would bring up would be kind of the isolation maybe from society and how that would feel. We homeschool, we're starting to homeschool our kids, so they're seven, four, one and a half. Um, But there's 14 children in this valley, so they have a lot of time playing with each other and then we have a lot of visitors as well. Yeah, I guess I, I did always feel concerned about homeschooling my children and feeling like they wouldn't be able to relate or cope to kind of mainstream society but I don't really have that concern now I I can see that yeah that they are strong and healthy and yeah if that's what they choose when they're older that that won't be their lifestyle won't have been a barrier to that (laughs) hopefully only an advantage yeah I guess I was brought up on the land here and I'm pretty grateful for that if I can give that opportunity to our kids then yeah, I will. And um, yeah, just we'll have an idea of what a good citizen of the planet is. And this is what we believe is our best chance of bringing up some more human beings, citizens of the planet, who respect the earth and respect God. I think also I've come up with this kind of feeling that um, we have a responsibility as Westerners where we've been heading towards this individualistic lifestyle for hundreds of years. Um, we actually have a responsibility now to breed that out of our children. This, we cannot survive. This planet cannot survive with the amount of consumption and um, greed <laughs> that we think we deserve um, as Westerners and and we've I feel like we've lost the ability like it's just so hard to live together and I feel like okay maybe there's a chance that I can make it a bit easier for my kids to live closely with other people and then they can do that for their kids and then eventually we'll be able to live in close proximity and share our resources which is the future (laughs) Yeah, did you want to talk about the community aspect? Yeah. Sharing resources, I, I guess the tension between communality and 
individual freedom or whatever and responsibility to the group, but that's been something that you've lived out, you know, every day here, mm. relying on the land and each other. Yeah, well, that's right. And we, as households, we each have our own, to some extent, our own economic unit. We don't live in common purse exactly, and our garden, while we, like, cultivate um, together as households and um, some crops are communal, there's also kind of individual plots within that. Um, so we've kind of created a mix where the households um, can depend on each other, but we can also make out autonomous decisions to some extent within the general kaupapa um, that we have kind of agreed upon. And as as our families have grown, um, that, you know, we, we continue to have conversations about... Um, about that kaupapa, about how we how we're gonna live it together, um, and those are those can be quite painful conversations. Everyone's got different expectations, different ways of communicating, um, but I think one of the things that really keeps it working is just like a general kind of trust that everyone is actually trying their best to live together and that everyone does have you know a lot of love and kindness in their actions even though sometimes you know it doesn't feel like that yeah I guess we're all part of an extended family and I guess we've kind of wanted to allow the communal aspect of it to grow organically over time and also hold lightly the concept of community and oh, kind of just pragmatically, really, just like if someone needs to leave, yeah, or if things don't work out, as we hoped we would, wouldn't see that, we wouldn't see that as the, the end of everything. Yeah, it's just a natural progression and, yeah, we don't want to force something on ourselves and just get stuck in that. Um, it's probably more for you, Marissa. When you moved here, you threw away your mobile phone, um, and it's one of the, the things, part of the culture of this farm, is that people don't have mobile phones or computers here on the land. I mean, what's the reasoning for that, and how do you think it's played out in you know living here for you as an individual and for the group? Yeah, um, a huge part of it for me is a was that overwhelming feeling of being responsible to or connected to this humongous number of people who I didn't necessarily have a lot of relationship with, of an, of genuine relationship with potentially, and just feeling very overwhelmed and unable to relate to my immediate environment, I suppose. And that's totally a personality thing that I felt that so extremely, I think. But, yeah, that was a big part of it for me. And I guess, yeah, there's so much to engage with um, when you're living communally and living on the land that the kind of extra pull of communication technology has just kind of amped up extremely in the last 10 to 15 years where people feel like, we should be um, connected and able to respond at any moment in our day, in our life. Um, and I think that does take away from relating to your immediate um, 
environment and the people in it. And then, yeah, of course, there's, you know, connection that you can lose through that. And you, and you, but it just is kind of means taking it up in another way, you know, writing letters, making phone calls. So we don't have phones on this property, but we have we call a phone hut off the property where we go to to connect. So all my family's back in Australia. So that's really important to me that I have that um, ability to phone. But it's just in a more of a um, controlled way, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's just been only of benefit to our life here, I feel like. It's hard in the lockdowns not being able to, yeah, connect with people um, off the property. Otherwise, great. Recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) That is Marissa Dowling and Patrick Land there talking about the community and land where they live in the north of New Zealand, about some of the ideas that guide uh, the lifestyle there and I guess what it looks like in practice. Now, I also spoke to Patrick's father, Joseph, who's been there for 40 years living on the Fenua, as they say, growing food and trying to build community. And he's always happy for a chat, Joseph, so let's have a listen to what he has to say. My name's Joseph Land. I live in the north of the North Island in New Zealand, married to Catherine, and we have seven children and over 20 grandchildren at this stage. And part of the reason I'm talking to you is I've been uh, living here on the land, on the same block of land as you for the last couple of months, and it's quite an interesting uh, way that you live. I guess to start off with, could you give us a bit of background of how it came about that uh, you ended up living in, in the way you've consciously decided to? Yes, I was, certainly I was fortunate enough to be brought up always looking at alternative ways of living because of my parents' choices, um, largely away from the way they were brought up, and especially my father's prophetic outlook on the universe, really, but this earth in particular, and instinctively, he wasn't a scientist and he wasn't practical, he's an academic uh, philosopher, a prophet, and instinctively he didn't like the trajectory that our Western society was heading all the way through the 20th, 19th, 20th centuries and seeming to have no deviation from this course towards what looked like destruction. So he was always trying to look for different ways of being, living, seeking other ways to live that were life-giving. Mm. A bit of a check at history in terms of where we lived and everything, but we ended up here in Hokianga. Um, I wasn't actually born in New Zealand, Fiji, where we lived similar lifestyle a lot of the time. But we moved up here when I was 15, and Dad had a large, unproductive block of land that we moved on to. And uh, he said, "I oh, do what you like. I've sort of done my dash years getting on by then. <laughs> so um, I had a blank slate in front of me, really, um, in terms of experimenting. From the very first year, I got involved down in our local village uh, in Firinaki, which is a Māori village, the indigenous people here. And they were, some of the people there still had the carryover of the lifestyle of the decades before them, which involved extended families living in one place together with large gardens to support them, um, milking cows, pigs, the 
the centre of it were these big vegetable gardens that supported a large number of people on a small bit of land. And as a 15-year-old, I saw that and I, I, that, I said, that's me. I, I want to live like that. And within three or four years, that had disappeared because most of the people had gone to town. In fact, I recall our neighbour, older man at the time, saying to me, I'm not doing it next year, and I begged him to, and he did it just for me. But his reason for not doing it wasn't that he had no one to help him with the work. He said, oh, there's no one here to eat the food. And uh, he would have produced all this food and no one to eat it. And he was quite sad, but it was the reality. But anyway, that was my model. And I live by the same river that his gardens are by, just further up. And once we were able to move on to the flat land here beside my parents' land, we were able to continue that lifestyle here and have done uninterrupted for now 40-something years. That's evolved and there's a culture now of not using um, farm machinery and instead using human labour or animal labour to grow your food and things like that. How did that come about and what was some of the reasoning behind it? Right, well, evolved's a good term, Andy, because we steered clear of being too ideologically driven or saying, this is the way we're going to do it. We tended into that a little bit when we were younger, not heavily, but enough to be off-putting. And Catherine and myself, you know, we've sort of reined that back and allowed this way of life to evolve so that it's actually real, not not artificially engineered or shaped. But it's, it just evolves in reality, which means you have to be flexible, hold things lightly, let them change from year to year, depending on who's living here and how things want to be done, and always assessing that we're remaining true to the basic values, which are learning a way of life that's not destructive, that can continually be lived for centuries, generations after us, and is equitable globally. When we look at globally, one of the little equations we keep in mind is how much usable productive land is there on this earth, how many people there are, what's our share? Have we exceeded that or not? Most of our Western countries, we exceed it hugely not getting at Australians, but my figures came from Australia. This is about 15 years ago. An average Australian requires 35 acres of land to support their lifestyle. This is town people as well, anyone across the board. And it'd be similar in New Zealand, perhaps slightly less because our land's more intensively used. But all that's available is about a tenth of that per person. So someone's missing out big time and we don't want to be the cause of that. So that's, that's a big driver for us is not how big can we get, but how many people can live off how small a piece of land um, sustainably. Mm. I know, come back, you mentioned already uh, Māori people, Indigenous people of um, this area, and it's something that is notable about living here is trying to build uh, a connection to Māori people. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Certainly, it's, it's a huge privilege for us to live here, surrounded by mostly Māori people down in the village, not far from us. And their spirituality, their values system is something that's nourished us um, spiritually, physically, 
socially and more yeah we can't say how much that's been the case and we starting from my father who struggled with these concepts because he grew up in a british colonial the british empire was everything to his father um but he he knew the wrongs of the colonial process that's happened here in New Zealand and Australia and other places. And he wanted to rectify that in the way we live so that we could have good relations now in spite of the damage caused by our people to these people. And the first, the primary thing that he said was, whatever we do here on this land, we do it. I'm struggling to not use Māori words all the time for the Australian ear, but you know, iraro e te maru o te hau kainga. That means beneath the protection and the authority of the local people, the indigenous people, always we place ourselves beneath that. They have the primary say over how or if we can live here or not. Um, that's not a legal construct. That's the social construct that we've put ourselves with. So we maintain that, though my parents have passed on now. Our children, our children-in-law say, this isn't our land. This is Te Hikutu land. Te Hikutu is the local sub-tribe, I guess, yeah, of this area. So we acknowledge this is their land and we live here by their good graces. And under in that way, we just enjoy so much manakitanga hospitality, blessings um, from the local people and integral to that relationship is having some acquaintance, the more the better, with the language, with te reo Māori, because there's so many values that are only conveyed properly of a people in their own language. And if you can share that language, you can share those deeper values and understand one another much better. Mm. And there's a practical sharing of land. On this land, there's some significant sites to local Māori people, waterfalls and um, river. It's interesting seeing people come in to go and visit these sites and, I guess, being welcomed onto the land as well. Is that something that's been conscious? Yes, in the Māori Māori cosmology, nothing is without spirit. So... There's a supreme creator at the beginning of it all and the management of the created world is allocated to other different deities. But everything, each mountain, each river, each tree, each rock has a, a modi, a spirit, a wairua. And when you view the world like that as we've learned to do so quite comfortably with our Christian beliefs, it develops... A, a respect for the created world, which makes it very, very difficult to crash it in the way our culture has and does do right around the globe and what we're seeing the consequences of now. But if one maintains that almost brotherhood, sisterhood with these what we call inanimate uh, aspects of the environment, if you maintain that relationship, how can you harm it? We do, but as soon as we know we are, we stop. You know, you're always conscious of it. So when you say invite people onto this land, we don't feel we even have that right to invite them, but we assure everyone that it's completely open access. You don't have to mention it. 
anytime, anywhere on this land where we live, of course it's their land. And these sacred spots, some are just nice places to swim, some are held with a lot of reverence. And so we try to maintain that reverence for those places too. Oh, another interesting thing about your life here, and it's one that's topical for a lot of society at the moment, is about disability and um, I guess how to include people with disabilities. I think it's interesting one of your children has an acquired brain injury. Um, I wonder your thoughts on how living a, a life that's the way that you do, close to land with a lot of manual labour, how that's fitted with disability and inclusion. Yes. People sometimes say, oh, I hear you're self-sufficient living there. And we, we cringe at the term because we don't want to be self-anything. Um, we like to see ourselves as interdependent. And, and aside on that is, hence, we do make quite a lot of compromises that if we were hard line to what we believe and how we should live, we would look and behave much more radically and therefore not integrate so well in the wider society. And we don't want that. So we make compromises so we can remain somewhat normal <laughs> amongst other people and have that wider socialising. But so that means this place is open and we don't want it just for us or just for the fit and able. It's always got to have a place for people, you say, disabilities and there's physical and intellectual, there's emotional and all sorts of disabilities people encounter in, in society. So we've, we've actually always, even with my parents, had the door open to anyone that needs a place to stay. There's always a bed and a feed. And we don't offer therapy, but it's a drug and alcohol free environment for people that struggle with those. So it makes a safe place for them. And people can come here who are ostracized by society or just out of prison or trying to get, get things together around mental health issues. Our son Gilbert, yeah, the prognosis for him after a drowning accident was that he would probably never walk or talk or do much at all, just vegetate. We think our lifestyle and this environment is what has made his incredible uh, recovery to the man he is now because he's been allowed to get out there as a little kid, get muddy, crawl around, fall in a drain, come out again. He's had all these stimuli to encourage his development and coupled with that is a huge amount of social interaction. So he's our number one uh, guest welcomer. He's got an uncanny... <laughs> way of knowing that someone we've never met before is turning up at the end of our road a hundred meters away from here behind some trees and he's there to welcome them that's our gilbert and we think this lifestyle has really made made that for him and for others in short term shorter term they it's a place of restoration and part of that's environment the way of life because we don't use machines um, people can join in with the work more easily. That might not be any good with a machine. And, yeah, there's that social interaction, especially around mental health. Um, I heard recently from a, a friend working in that field that someone had been looking at an Indigenous people somewhere in the world that have very low incidences of mental health problems, and they concluded the three main things were good food, exercise, and proper face-to-face -face communication and ever since then I've looked at people struggling and my goodness those three things are often missing 
um, and this place provides all three. So it's a good place to come for that. Yeah. You've been here a long time and you've probably had a, interactions with a lot of people who maybe admire the way that you're living or something, but there's not too many other people that do it, I guess. Why do you think that is and how do you feel about that? Well, yes, many people say, oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah, not, not many do. And part of it is the length of time we've been at it. This has evolved. The first 20 years, I was always very dissatisfied with where we'd got to in terms of growing our own food. It wasn't until about 20 years ago, we tipped over into producing our own grain for bread and porridge. And to me, that was a critical moment where I felt I could now say, yeah, I was living how I wanted to. But um, the other thing is we're because we're a large family and it's mostly family based, we've there's always been enough people for moral support, <laughs> socialising. Yeah, whereas if you try it on your own, it can be quite difficult. When you do take on most processing jobs yourself at home, that's a lot for one person, one couple or one family to take on every single thing. Once you've got four or five families, you can allocate different aspects of jobs, lifestyle to different people. And and if you had 100 families, even better. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Joseph. Kia Yeah, no, you're welcome. That's good. That's about a tenth of what I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, well, I'm still running. Well, I actually did want to acknowledge the younger generation here and... They just continually impress us with how they've analysed the way my generation have done things and sifted out the crap and tried to eradicate it. And they've kept the good and they've added to it with huge strengths. Like in child rearing, you know, we were very careless of emotional well-being in the way we brought up our kids. And they've strengthened that aspect of it and uh, just many things. Yeah, they're just a wonderful set of people that now live here in the generation of our children's age, and I take my hat off to them. That is Joseph Land there talking about uh, the history and some of the ideas behind um, the community where he lives with members of his extended family and uh, whatever other fellow travellers are around there at any given time which actually goes by two names. One is Makio, the traditional Māori name for the area, and the other is St. Francis Farm, dedicated to Francis of Assisi, a um, 13th century Italian monk whose uh, cosmology captured in the brother-son Sister Moon um, was quite similar, really, to Māori culture that uh, Joseph Land was just describing, and I think it comes out in the community and land that we're talking about on today's show are connecting to two ancient ways of viewing the environment around you there. Two ways that possibly have more in common than uh, most people would assume at first glance. Now, I do have another little interview I'm going to squeeze in because I think it's good to get different voices and different perspectives, especially when we're talking about living in community, which is something that this uh, group of people on this patch of land have decided to emphasize. So this is Kira Ellery, one of the uh, next generation, which Joseph was just referring to. So I'm Kira, and I live here in Michael. So we've talked a bit with other people, I guess, about 
the culture of this place um, and how it's come to be like this. For you who moved into here from elsewhere, what attracts you to a low-tech life on the land? Um, yeah, well, growing up in Brisbane, spent 10 years as a kid in Brisbane and I was always, always wanted to get out of the city. That was a big thing for me and always had low tech in our house and never missed computers and machinery like the quiet simple way of being yeah it's nice to live a life that you feel like to your knowledge isn't doing too much damage to people and places that you can't see as well as the ones you can see yeah well let's talk about the ones that you can see i mean you don't just live here with your immediate nuclear family there's a a wide group of people that live here in the valley and in the broader network in the area that are living similar lives so how does that play out the community aspect of it I mean what are what are the good things about it and maybe some of the difficult things yeah I mean the difficult things are kind of what you get in community living which you've got to learn how to communicate and compromise and put up with people's Worst qualities. Um, positives are huge. Like support and easy ways for your kids to get a bit of space from you and you to get a bit of space from the kids. Yeah, and just really nice having other people around who share similar values and have things in common. One of the things that I have noticed is, uh, I guess, some of the shared uh, child rearing that goes on. I mean, you take each other's kids for homeschooling, and and you in particular, you lead the the music group singing Waiata, mm-hmm. traditional Maori songs, or and other songs as well. And it's an interesting thing, isn't it? The things that different people in a community can bring that you, as a, somebody who's come into this you know community and extended family, have brought that musical aspect. What do you think is the importance of each person bringing in those different aspects? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not one to put myself forward in terms of thinking I have skills to contribute usually, so I kind of had to push myself on that. But it's great when people do and seeing the differences and having a bit of diversity and um, different families have different emphasis of you know, what they prioritise and different talents which they share to some degree. One of the other things that you've been involved in is the Bread and Roses newspaper, which is, I guess, a way of this community communicating with friends and strangers, I guess a broader public in some way about mm-hmm. what's going on here. What's the importance of that? Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder why we do it. Um, I think it's, it's helpful for me personally. I enjoy writing, so I like to clarify my clarify my thoughts through writing, and um, maybe it helps people understand us better. And maybe we don't seem quite so weird <laughs> if people have read a bit about why we do things the way we do. Um, and it's always good to keep in touch with people because that's something that I feel like we compromise on a lot is keeping in touch with people, not having the usual ways of doing that and that we don't really do social media and most people don't like writing letters I like writing letters but yeah it's nice to keep in touch with people and kind of and share ideas all right thanks Kira. all right <laughs> that is Kira Ellery there 
not the most talkative member of the community at St. Francis Farm that we've been talking to today, but she certainly brings her own uh, gifts to the community, as everybody does in a, a space like that where so many of the needs for daily life are tried to be produced by hand and are on the land there where they live. I guess there's a lot of room for everybody to find their own niche and, and what they have to contribute to the group. Um, I hope you have enjoyed our little uh, delve into the community of St. Francis Farm today on the show. If you're interested, you certainly would be welcome to drop in and visit there. Uh, there's visitors all the time going there. I mean, it's a long way from Brisbane, and uh, the difficulty is you can't really communicate with them by phone, and there's no website or social media or anything. You have to just turn up. Um, you get to the village of Fitanaki in uh, the Hukianga region of New Zealand and then maybe ask for directions from a local. Um, or if you really are interested in finding out more, you can contact uh, me here at the Paradigm Shift and I can um, fill you in with a bit more info and connect you with them if you're interested. But um, it is a very different way of living and I think we need that, right? We have... Um, uh, quite a destructive mainstream way of living in our country and in New Zealand and uh, a system that makes it quite hard to live our alternatives. Uh, so it's so good to see people who are building different ways of doing things and building them in a sustainable way that can last a long time. As I said at the beginning of the show, I spent two months there over the new year, but I had been there twice before and I have an ongoing connection uh, with the place and I do find it quite inspiring uh, where they live as well as a lovely uh, beautiful place just to be. That is all we have time for today on the Paradigm Shift. I'll see you next week.